There was a father who had two sons. The older son is trustworthy and honors his father. And the younger son, he's a mess. He rebels and cashes in his inheritance to travel far away and blow it all on partying and being stupid. And then there's a famine in the land and he runs out of money. So he has to scrape by by taking care of somebody's pigs. And he's so hungry he wants to eat the pig slop, at which point it occurs to him, if I'm gonna be a farmhand, I might as well go home and work for my dad. At least I won't be eating pig food. So he treks back home, rehearsing his apology. Now, the father is certain that his son did not survive the famine. But then, one day, he sees someone walking down the road. It's his son. He's not dead. And so the father runs to him and embraces his son, kissing him all over. The son starts his speech. Dad, I don't deserve to be your son. Maybe I could come and work for you. But before he can finish, the father calls his servants to go get the nicest robe, new sandals, a fancy ring for his son. They are to prepare the best food for a banquet. It is time to celebrate. Now later that day, the older brother arrives from a long day working in the field to discover his long lost loser of a brother has come home and they're celebrating. And he gets angry. And think about it. He's been faithful to his father all of these years. He never got a party like this. And and then this disgrace of a family member comes home and they're going to celebrate him? It's disgusting. He refuses to join the banquet. So the father finds the older brother outside and he says, Son, you are already in our family. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate your brother because he was lost. And now he's found. He was dead. But now he's alive. Kairos, it's so good to be with you. My name is Danny. I'm a pastor here, and I'm really, really happy that we get to worship together. We're in the third week of our series called Parables, Stories by Jesus. In this series, we're looking at the stories that Jesus told. When Jesus wanted to prove a point about God and how to understand God, he would tell a story. In that video there, that was from the Bible Project. And the Bible Project is this incredible resource. It's free, it's online, and it's a great way to dive deeper into what God wants us to know about God through the scriptures. And Jesus does that for us. He reveals things about God through his stories. Now, this story that Jesus tells about a couple of sons and a father, he's proving this one point. Are you ready for it? It's really simple. Jesus loves lost people. Jesus really, really loves lost people. And you know that Jesus really, really loves lost people because when Jesus told other stories to prove one point, he would just tell one story to prove that one point. But in this particular point, Jesus told three different stories. Three different stories to prove one point. It's clear. Jesus wants us to know this one point, and it is Jesus loves lost people. To really understand how much Jesus loves lost people and why he loves lost people and how he wants to save lost people, I think it's important to understand the context of what's happening right before Jesus tells this story about a couple of sons and their father. Before our Bible reading tonight, it's in Luke chapter 15, we see the scene. There are tax collectors, there are notorious sinners, and they oftentimes came and listened to Jesus teach. Then there were also Pharisees and teachers of religious law, and they complained about how Jesus would hang out with these terrible sinners and even eat with them. Eating back in those days, it was this holy sign of, sign of people that you would call family. So imagine that this is like the dinner table, right? And think about who would you like to have at your dinner table, your friends, your family, people who matter. But who are the people that matter to you? Well, oftentimes we want the people who matter to us and we want people who we matter to to be people are of high status and importance. And they're really, really good people, right? But around Jesus's table, He's got people that the rest of society would look down on. And this drove some people absolutely nuts. 
specifically those Pharisees. If you want to know what a Pharisee is, a really, really easy way to remember it is Pharisees were really, really religious, strict people. And they were very, very caught up on the laws. And they thought you had to be perfect in order for God to love you. And that's not fair, you see. Huh? Pretty good? Okay, we'll warm it up a little bit more. But Jesus is talking to a group. And do you see who's in this crowd? It's the people that the rest of society would say don't belong, they're outcasts. And it's the other people on the other side of society who are giving that message. It's the people who are the sinners, and it is the people who are apparently really, really good at following God's law. These are people from opposite sides of town. These are people from opposite places in life. These are people from opposite perspectives and points of view. I think in order to really draw this out to show what was the tensity like in that room, in that space, well, I think that it would be like as if it were saying now the Hawkeyes and Cyclones often came to listen to Jesus teach. And okay, that's a little tense, right? We feel that in our state sometimes. But what if we pushed it even further to really understand the point? What if it was now the priests and the drug dealers often came to listen to Jesus teach? Ooh, okay, it's starting to get a little more tense, start to understand. Now, it would even be like this. Now, the Democrats and the Republicans often came to listen to Jesus teach. You ready for this to get really awkward? Now, for the far left and the alt-right leaders on the right side, they, they, they came to listen to Jesus teach. Anybody feel uncomfortable yet? Good. That's how tense it was in this group that Jesus was speaking to. And he saw their tension and he saw how much they disliked each other. He saw how the people who were considered the sinners were the outcasts of society. And he saw how the Pharisees and the religious teachers of law were so caught up in their own ways that they refused to welcome other people into their life. And Jesus wanted to heal that tension. So Jesus told them a story, a parable, if you will. He starts off by telling this one really neat story. It's about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep but lost one. It's a really, really popular and famous story that maybe you heard about in songs, maybe you heard about in stories, you heard about it in other literature. It shows up all over the place. There was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, lost one sheep. And then Jesus said about the shepherd, won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, if you had a sheep that was that cute, of course he would. But sometimes when we read these stories from the Bible, we're like, okay, there's Jesus. I follow Jesus. Jesus is God. So, of course, when Jesus says something, we nod our heads and we say, oh, that's so beautiful. But imagine if you're one of the people who's hearing this story for the first time. This story's never been told. No one's ever heard it before. And you're hearing Jesus say, yeah, there's a farmer or there's a shepherd. He's got 99 safe sheep and one that's lost. So he just abandons the 99 to find the one. Jesus, that's not very economical. To prove the point even further, he said, what about the woman who has 10 coins? She's got 10 coins and she's lost one. And he says, won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And us, when we read that story today, we're like, yes, Jesus. But back in those days, in this tense place where there are people from all these different places, I wonder if they're like, uh, she could probably spend that time just making another coin, couldn't she? What's the point of this? It's not economical, Jesus. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And then Jesus says what happens in heaven when these kinds of things happen. He said there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Paraphrase, God really loves lost people. He says there's this huge party in heaven and people can't take it. 
You ever been to a party like at Jack Trice where it's just going absolutely nuts? Could you imagine if just when you walk into the stadium and you stand at midfield and everybody sees you and they go wild? It's not like a super relatable experience, I suppose, for most of us. But while a lot of us won't have thousands of people analyzing our work, all of heaven's armies is celebrating you and cheering for you. And it's rowdy and it's crazy. And they're singing songs even better than Sweet Caroline. It's amazing. Big shout out to my friend Ryan Heron who took this picture with his drone. Pretty sweet, huh? Our Bible reader for the night. What a guy. Eh? Come on. Hey, hey. All right. Cool. Like, don't you understand all of heaven's armies celebrates and cherishes you? And I wonder if Jesus just left that crowd dumbfounded. Why are they going so crazy over lost people? The Pharisees, the really great religious people are saying, why would they go so crazy over them? And then the notorious sinners, why would they go so crazy over me? And then Jesus wants to illustrate the point further. And Jesus was this master storyteller, so oftentimes he would tell stories, like master storytellers would tell their stories. He would oftentimes tell them in three acts, and that's what it looks like he's starting to do here. But when he tells this story, it completely shocks and surprises everybody, including the way that he tells the story. Because when he's telling this story, he leads people to think that they have it figured out about God, but what he's about to tell them is that absolutely everything that these people have believed about how they relate to God is upside down. It's crazy. Are you ready? Turn to the person next to you and say, buckle in, brother and sister. <laughs> Speaking of your siblings, act one that Jesus introduces, it's about the little brother. Are there any little brothers or little sisters in the room? A few here and there. Okay, I'm a little brother. Uh, live my whole life off of hand-me-downs. I'm pretty sure these are my brother's clothes. It just still happens even at 30. Jesus introduces this story, and he says that there is a father with two sons. And the youngest of the sons comes to the father, and he says, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, that's kind of a weird thing to say to your parent. Hey, why don't you go ahead and give me a present now, by the way, before you die? Why did he point in the part about before you die? Well, back in those days, this was a very shocking and jarring and offensive thing to say. Whether you were a Pharisee or a notorious sinner, hearing this would have been completely surprising. See, in those days, in order for a child to get their inheritance from their parent, that parent would have to die. So for the son to say to the parent, I want my inheritance now, what he's saying is, you know, I'm starting to wonder if you're ever going to die. Can we just pretend like you're gone? It's absolutely offensive no matter who it was in the crowd who was hearing the story, they were taken aback by this. And they would have had this understanding of how did the father respond? In that ancient Middle Eastern culture, if the patriarch of the family had been spoken to like that by a child, well, the patriarch of the family would have had every right to verbally, if not physically, abuse that kid in that society. Run him out of the house. But instead, it says that the father obliges. He says, yes, I'll give you your inheritance. Now, in those days, the father's entire estate, all of his wealth would have been his land. It wouldn't have actually been in cash flow yet. So in order to get that, he had to divide the land. And he had to take part of the land. Let's say that this is a portion. He had to sell it. And he got back what he could for it, and he went to the son, and he said, okay, that part of my land is now gone. That part of my wealth, that part of my life, it's yours. Go and do with it what you will. 
This son is asking so much from his father. And every single time that the other people in the neighborhood, that the other people in his society, the other people in his village would have thought of this father, they would have thought about the father who couldn't keep his family together. They would have thought about the father who gave up his wealth. They would have thought about the father who sent his family potentially into poverty just for this one rebellious kid. Do you see what this son has asked from his father? It's absolutely mind-bending. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. The father should have responded with verbal or physical abuse according to that culture. But this father acts very, very differently. And what does the son do? You might hope, okay, well, the son responded nicely and kindly. He treated the things well and he invested it and came back with 15% more. But instead, Jesus does not hold back when he says how this younger son spent his money. He said that he spent it on prostitutes, on alcohol, on terrible sorts of things that are not good for him or the people around him. Until one day he finds himself in a pig pen. And it's then that he finally came to his senses. You ever have that moment when you come to your senses? When everything starts to make sense? You're like, why have I done this? I can't believe it. I think that this son is having that moment. I cannot believe what has happened in my life. He just wants to go back. You ever had a moment in your life where you just wish that you could take things back? You ever had that moment in your life where you've been wandering for so long, but now instead of wandering, you're starting to wonder? If I parse that out a little bit on what I mean, the son had been wandering from home for so long. Now he's missing home, but after wandering and missing home, now he's wondering if home actually misses him. Desperately, he just wishes that he could take things back. Have you ever wished that you could take things back? A couple of weeks ago, I had an experience where I really, really wished that I could take things back. Just change it. And I felt like everything else would be so different. Sometimes it happens in the small little situations of life. My wife and I were on a plane from Paris, France to Copenhagen, Denmark. And as we're boarding the plane, we were one of the last people on the plane. And so I'm just desperately searching for some space in that... uh, what's it called, the, the storage cabins up top. And my, like, my only question is, they know how many people are going to get on the plane. Why, why isn't there ever more? Okay, that's another conversation for another day. But why isn't there more room? Finally, I find a spot where there's just enough room for our bags. And so I take our bags, and I'm like stuffing it and squeezing it. But as I'm doing that, I didn't realize that I had a water bottle not, fast, not securely fastened into the side of the bag. And as I'm shoving this bag into the, ca- the storage cabinet, the water bottle falls out, and it's a metal water bottle, and I hear this clank, I can't make a metal noise. And it didn't hit a chair, it didn't hit the floor, it hit the head of an elder French woman. And I can't speak French, but it was pretty clear she was cussing me out. (laughs) She was so mad, and I felt about that big. At one point, she turns around, and I don't know how, but somehow I understood she was demanding to see the object that hit her, that struck her head, and I hand her the water bottle. She starts shaking it and screaming things in French, and I'm like, I want to get away. I like, where's the parachute? I'll just jump out of the plane now. Just desperately, I wish I could go back in time and just fasten that seatbelt and make it all okay, or fasten that, basically the seatbelt for the water bottle in my bag and make it all okay, but I couldn't take it back. At one point, a team of flight attendants comes up. They grab the lady. They say, are you okay? And of course, she's like, no, no, no. She removes her hand from her head, and it's covered in blood. I'm like, oh. I mean, I just put my head down. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. They take her to the back. They're working on her head for like 20 minutes. And I just, I just wanted to get away. <laughs> and uh, her husband... Um, 
comes back down the aisle, and I look at him, and I'm just shaking. I'm like, okay, he's going to kill me. And he looks at me and goes, these are things that happen. (laughs) That was a little more Italian, wasn't it? (laughs) I'm like, merci, merci. How do you say thank you in French? Someone, please. Merci. How do you say, you're welcome. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. Okay, we'll connect later. And it was not, because like in that moment, there was no way I was going to redeem myself. There was no way I was going to reconcile myself. And believe me, I didn't feel better in the moment. It took me like days to start to feel better. I needed someone else to come into the situation to say, it's, it's okay. It's going to be fine. The son had found himself in a situation and in a position where he could not make it okay for himself. He tried. He had a plan in his head. It said that as he's sitting there in the pig pen, and he looks at the pig sloth, and he's starting to think about eating it. He says, well, at least the servants in my father's home have enough to eat. So he says, well, I'll just go back there. And I'll say, I'm not your son anymore. I, I just, I just want to work for you. You could be my boss, my manager. He's got this speech in his mind because he, know, I, he knows I can't fix this. But there is someone who can It says that as he's nearing home and approaching home, it says, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. His father would have had no idea that that was going to be the day that his son came back. So what does that mean? That means every single day, every single night, the father sat outside waiting for this son who had disrespected and disobeyed him and wanted him dead. He sat outside waiting for that son. He saw him coming and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him and he kissed him. The son didn't get to his speech. I think that's so important. The father does not wait for the son to give a speech and to repent and to fix things in order for him to kiss the son and welcome him back into the family. The son's repentance doesn't initiate the kiss. Instead, the father's kiss initiates the son's repentance. The father makes it possible. The father redeems him. The father welcomes him. And it's totally shocking and it's totally jarring, but it entirely lines up with God's heart for lost people. This crowd is sitting here and they're just baffled by it. This is the son that lost part of the father's inheritance. He didn't return it. It's gone. There's nothing that can be done about that. Jesus is baffling this crowd, telling them God cares about lost people. The shepherd was focused on the lost sheep, not the 99 found ones. The woman was focused on the one lost coin, not the nine lost ones. The father was focused on this one lost son. Not everything else that was already found. Maybe that sounds a little bit insensitive, but don't you think about how you think about lost things? Has anybody here ever lost something before? I lose things a lot. I'm a pretty forgetful person. It's super frustrating. Well, among the things that I lose the most are socks. Anybody else here have issues with socks? I've got like a laundry basket full of lone socks where I've lost their partners in life. It's so sad. And I'm kind of curious, like at what point should I just throw away those socks? But I feel bad because as soon as I throw away that one sock, then I'm going to find away the other sock and the other sock's going to come home and be like, hey, where's my brother? And be like, he's in a better place, right? And then, like, I run down the street, and I'll see, like, socks that are just, like, thrown on the side of the ground. I'm like, oh, that might be my boy. And, you know. 
And it's funny, like every single time that I do laundry, this is, a, this is an actual, this is a real sock where I'm missing the partner. Like this is an actual sock. I'm missing the other sock of this right now. And every single time that I do my laundry, I'm like, that darn running sock, where is it? I have actually, at a certain point, unfolded all of my clothes in my drawers looking for this sock, just thinking maybe it just ended up in one of the shirts. And it's ridiculous. I have these other clothes. I have these other socks. But when you're missing something, when you've lost something, you're not concerned about what you know you have. You're concerned. You're laser focused on what's missing. That's how it is for God. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. He is laser focused on what has gotten away. And he will not stop focusing on what has gotten away until he's brought it home. Brought it home. It feels good to come home. And I'm not saying that it feels good for every single person in the world to come home because some people have really complicated, actual, physical, real homes. I understand that. But the real home, that's a place where you belong. That's a place where it actually doesn't matter the reason why you came home. Like, take a, re- take a look at why this son came home. He did not come home to show the father that he loved him. He did not come home to redeem the family. He did not come home to make things right. He came home because he was hungry. He came home to get a paycheck. He came home to fill his stomach. And the father welcomes him anyway. I don't know what the reason is for why you're here tonight. But you can just come home. God just wants you home. Your intention doesn't actually matter. Later tonight when we take communion... Your intention of why you come forward to receive God's grace through communion, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you get grace. What matters is the way that we respond to it. Your repentance does not initiate the the Father's kiss for us. The Father's kiss for us initiates the repentance. Just come home. God wants you home. And when people hear this story, oftentimes we only think about this part of the story, the great grace that is received from the fa- or from, for the son from the father. And we think about it, and that's nice. But Jesus continues to surprise people because there's another character that hasn't been introduced yet. And this is act two. And it's the big brother. Anybody in here a big brother or big sister? Okay, right on. We got all our hand-me-downs from you. <laughs> how would you feel if someone from your family had been missing for so long and they came home? We'd like to think that we'd welcome them with open arms. Growing up with my dad as a pastor, we had this rule in our house. Saturday nights, you had to be home by midnight because on Sunday morning, he was getting up to preach. And you do not want the wrath of God weighing on you during church when your dad's looking at you and saying, do you know why my sermon's not going well right now? Because you came home late. He never once did that. But I felt that, right? And so if we came home late, my parents would have a talk with us the next day. And it wasn't fun at all. Well, there was one night when I was home on time and I felt really good about myself. My brother wasn't home yet, though. I know. Midnight happens. 12.30 happens. 1 o'clock happens. And somewhere between 1 and 2 o'clock, in walks old John Boy, coming in the door, loud with his keys. He turns on the lights, and I just, oh, this better be good. (laughs) 
I'm like making a scene. I want people in the house to hear. Why? Because I want him to suffer punishment. I want him to feel it. I want him to know it was wrong. John's going downstairs. I can't believe you're this late. I can't believe. Do you know what dad has to do tomorrow? <laughs> My parents come out of the bedroom. What is wrong? What's happening? I'm like, well, your son, <laughs> despite our best efforts, has come home late. And my parents just said something along the lines of, I'm just glad you're home. Go to bed. <laughs> Show your wrath, reverend. <laughs> so we like to say that we're welcoming with our arms and love, come on home. But really, how does it actually go? Well, the big brother can relate to reality. The older brother was angry that the father was throwing his son a party and he wouldn't go in. The text tells us that his father came out and begged him. This is ginormous surprise number two. See, the younger son had completely embarrassed and humiliated the father in front of the neighborhood because he took away part of the wealth and he spent it on ridiculous things. But now the father is throwing the biggest party of his life, and it doesn't take a psychologist or a human behavior expert to understand that this is the best day of the father's life. And on this best day of the father's life, where the entire village is coming back to celebrate the return of the son, it's the father's biggest party he's ever thrown. His oldest son won't come inside. He is deliberately disrespecting and disobeying his dad. And again, in this ancient Middle Eastern culture, this would be the time for the father to rebuke that older son. But this is the father who walks outside and he begs the son. Listen, whatever it is, however you have to come, I just want you to come home. I just want you to come home. Son, he calls him son. The older brother responds to the father. He says, well, after all these years, I've slaved for you. And all that time, you never even gave me one young goat. Yet when this son of yours, isn't that interesting? Is there anybody out there in the world where you're like, you know, I'm cool with being a part of God's family so long that person's not a part of it? It's exactly what this older son is feeling right now. He won't even call him his brother. He won't call his father his father. He's just saying, this relationship you guys have. In the Greek, he quite literally says, hey, you he won't call his father, father. And that was this incredible uh, disrespect for the dad. See, calling somebody father in those days was a huge deal. And it was a big deal for Jesus to use the term father. If you read through your Old Testament, the parts of the Bible that come before Jesus lived, you will find this beautiful imagery about God. And oftentimes God is compared to a father. God is compared to a mother, described like this perfect parent. But nobody actually looks at God, prays to God and says, you're my parent. And then here's Jesus. And in every single instance but one throughout the New Testament, when Jesus addresses God personally, he calls him Father. Every single time but once. It was a big deal. And now Jesus is telling a story about how there's this perfect older brother showing incredible disrespect to his father by calling him you. I don't want to be a part of this family anymore if he's going to be in it. He was squandering your money on prostitutes and you're celebrating him by killing the fattened calf? 
So what's his real problem? Why doesn't he want to be a part of this family anymore? It's the cost, right? The father had already given up part of the wealth and that was going to be part of the older son's inheritance. And now that the son is coming back with nothing and the father is giving up more of the family's wealth, well, now that's less of the pie for the older brother again. He's saying he doesn't deserve that kind of grace. I'm the one who's been here. I deserve the stuff. And how interesting is that? Jesus is describing two brothers who are very different from opposite sides of the community, opposite sides of society, opposite sides of political spectrum, opposite sides of perspective, opposite sides of behavior, and yet they're struggling with the exact same thing. One is trying to control the father and get the father's stuff by being very bad. The other is trying to control the father and get the father's stuff by being very good. They're both lost. Both of them don't really want the father. They just want the father's stuff. One did it by saying, go ahead and pretend like you're dead. The other one did it by saying, I'm perfect. Give it to me now. And as Jesus is talking to this crowd of notorious sinners and perfect Pharisees, he's calling them out. Every single one of you will struggle with this, he's telling them. You want the stuff, but you don't want the giver. You want the inheritance, but you don't want the Father. Some of you are trying to control God by being very, very bad. Some of you are trying to control God by being very, very good. And so it redefines what it means to be lost. See, a lot of times when we're lost, it's because we're telling ourselves, I can find myself. Like it's self-discovery, right? There's nothing wrong with learning more about yourself and trying new things and all that. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not dissing that. But what I am saying is that oftentimes when we're trying to find ourselves, we're as silly as walking through the wilderness without a map. We can't always find ourselves and we become lost over it. It's the obvious one, right? It's the son who was very bad and he wandered off. But then there are those of us who are lost because we can't save ourselves. We're telling ourselves, I can save myself, but no, no, you can't. We try to control God by being very, very good. And the funny thing about this story is you've got the son who's extremely rebellious and he spends his money on prostitutes and alcohol and partying and all the things in this world that make us feel extremely uncomfortable. The son of rebellion is saved at the end of this story. The son of rebellion is found and the son of moral prestige and religion is lost. The truth is, I cannot find myself truly. And I certainly cannot save myself truly. I need someone else. And that someone else is actually the character in the story that's missing. Because we're on the edges of our seats. The father has come to the older son and said, will you please come in the party? And Jesus is like, that's the end of the story. What what happened? What's next? Jesus didn't tell the rest of the story with his lips, but he did live it with the rest of his life. And that's act three. It's about the missing character from this story. It's the true big brother. No matter if somebody in this crowd was a Pharisee or a notorious sinner, every single one of them would have been asking the same question. Who is going to go save the younger son? 
Jesus told the story about the shepherd going and saving the lost sheep. He told the story about the woman who went and saved the lost coin. But then there's this younger brother who's lost. Why didn't anybody go to save him? And every single person in that society during that time would have known it was the job of the older brother to keep the family together. It was the job of the older brother to make the inheritance worth something in the next generation by keeping the family together, by bringing everyone back to the table every night. It was the job of the older brother And so the entire crowd is asking, where's the older brother? And Jesus has an answer for that. We see the absence of the older brother in this story when it says, quick, bring the finest robe to the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate. It's kind of like alluding, like, how did he get back? What happened here? What is it that drew him back despite his flawed intentions? But then we read this about Jesus. They stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown. They put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. What has Jesus done? Jesus has gone out into the wilderness. He's gone out into those places where the younger son had been lost. When the son gets home, the father puts the finest robe on him and he puts the family ring on his finger, and he throws a party. Jesus goes into a place where they strip him. They don't give him a ring, but a crown of thorns and a mocking scepter for his hand. They don't celebrate him, but they taunt him. Jesus is going to a place that none of us want to go and none of us will ever have to go. Because he wants you to come home. All of heaven's armies are cheering for you to come home. To walk in the door and do what? Say what? Not to say your resume. Not to say what you've done right. Not to say what you've done wrong. But to say, Father, enough with your speech. Enough with your reasons for why you deserve to be found or deserve to be saved. Just say, Father. Do you know why you got to do that? Because Father's a really big deal to Jesus. That kind of close, intimate relationship. The point that Jesus is trying to prove in this parable is that lost people matter to God so much that God would call them his children. Why does God get to call lost people like you and me his children? Because every single time that Jesus spoke to God, he called him Father except once. And it is when he was on the cross. He shouted out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. And he didn't call him father. He said, my God, my master, my boss, I walked outside of the family to bring all those who are lost back. Who is the big brother? Who is missing from the story? Jesus. Jesus is our big brother. He's the one who goes out and keeps the family together. Pharisees, 
tax collectors, notorious sinners. He's calling you home. And it doesn't matter what your intention is for why you've come home. Have you come home for a reward? Have you come home just to fill your stomach? Have you come home out of superstition? Whatever it is, just come home because home is the place. It is the person that you were created for. His name is Jesus and he is inviting you to come home. Come home.